We're going to be talking on today's morning show about something tremendously important to all of us, something which impacts nearly every facet of our lives, and yet something about which we have very little conscious awareness. We're going to be talking about design and the work of designers, and in particular, the way in which we in the general public tend to badly misunderstand how designers do what they do. My guest, Manuel Lima, is an award-winning designer and the author of several previous bestsellers, The Book of Circles, The Book of Trees, and Visual Complexity. His most recent book is titled The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change. This book, among other things, really helps us understand the way in which designers best function in the 21st century and also addresses some of the myths, some of the misunderstandings that surround what successful designers do and how they achieve their success. The book comes to us from MIT Press, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Again, it is titled The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change. I had the privilege of speaking with Manuel Lima via Zoom from his home in Portugal. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we can have this conversation. I have to say that design is something that I know very, very little about. But over the years of doing this radio program, on several occasions, I have interviewed designers who have written about design. And it never ceases to amaze me how much design is a part of all of our lives, even though most of us never stop to really think about that. And it it seems like that is one of the purposes of your book, maybe not the primary purpose, but it certainly see, serves as a helpful reminder that design is something that none of us should take for granted. Absolutely. Um, I think even when I decided to become a designer, I don't think design is certainly what it is today, or at least adds the the influence that it has today, right? We just turn on a mobile phone. Uh, everyone has a mobile phone these days, and we just turn it on, you know, we use apps, and all of that is created by engineers and designers, right? Working together side by side. So the, and some of these apps, some of these services and online platforms are being used by not just millions, but billions with a B, so the level of reach and influence that design has today and designers have, right, is tremendous. You know, but as I say in the book, with a tremendous amount of influence and reach comes also a great degree of responsibility. And I think this is really why, why that I decided to create the book in the first place to really become a bit of a, a wake up call for, for designers to really uh, come to terms with their own sort of uh again, responsibility in the grand scheme of things. At the very opening of the book, you make the point that those who learn design and the way that design is taught um, mm. fails to address some really important facets of of the work of designers. And ethics is one of them. I mean, there is, right. as far as you know, no ethics course that's ever a, a part of of design programs. Uh, if such a thing were possible, I mean, if there were an, an ethics course, what kinds of things would you want such a course to explore? 
I mean, one of them is is the role that designers play in society, right? Not just to like to their fellow human beings, but also like to the environment. You know, you mentioned ethics, but I think another huge miss is ecology. I mean, almost everything we do, and it's this is not again just the domain of industrial designers, because normally we think about industrial design or fashion design as the main culprits when it comes to the environment, but even digital designers have a huge responsibility, right? If you do a single search on Google, it's the equivalent of lighting up a light bulb for like 17 seconds. Now you do add up for just you yourself, right? The amount of searches you probably do on a single day. And now think about you know, the impact that this has on the environment. So when we create highly addictive experiences that are meant for people to spend a long time searching and interacting with certain uh, platforms, that has a huge, tremendous ecological impact and costs, right? So things like ethics, things like ecology, also things like psychology, understanding the human mind. Ultimately, designers work with for humans primarily, right? Even though, you know, I, I try to say in the book that our ultimate stakeholder should always be uh, our planet, right? They, our planet Earth is the ultimate stakeholder, right? This idea of Earth-centered design opposed to human-centered design is a really important argument that I try to make, make in the book, but still understanding the human brain, understanding how easy it is for us to fulfill the needs of humans, but also exploit how easy it is for us to exploit the human mind for profit is something that every designer should be taught in schools. And, and I think in part, maybe historically design has always been associated with art. You know, many design courses today are still taught in art schools. And I think that's one of the problems. Uh, and certainly one of the problems that needs to change for us to like come to terms with the new demands of, of the century. Mm. Yes. And and when you talk about how, I mean, a psychology course or even more than one would be a, a beneficial addition to the typical design program, you, you, you write, understanding the workings of the human brain, our numerous biases and triggers, attitudes and behaviors is of greatest importance to any creative professional. And of course, uh, you go on to explore still more specifics uh, in your fascinating book. The book, again, is The New Designer. Uh, and uh, explain to our listeners how you have structured this book and the kind of myths that you specifically explore. Absolutely. Thanks, Ray. Well, so I tried, I mean, of course, it was inevitable for me to talk about the environment, right? So I, I knew that a good amount of, of the work that I was putting together in terms of research and writing had to focus on our responsibility towards the environment. But I think in our day and age, right, and we see all these things coming with like, you know, the major platforms like Google's and the YouTube's and Facebook's, like how a lot of those platforms have turned from great to evil, right, in a very short amount of time primarily because how easy it is for those platforms to really play with the human mind and creating highly addictive experiences, not just for adults, but also for young kids. And, and myself, I have two young kids, you know, seven, uh, eight and five. And of course, that is concerning to me because I can see how easy it is to explore the human mind for profit. So at some point during my research, during my four-year research for this book, I realized that talking about the responsibility that designers have towards society, towards our fellow humans was also all important, right? But then finally, I was really, and I think that's what, that was actually the genus, the sort of the, the origin of the book was really thinking a little bit about 
uh, we ourselves as designers also have to change. And the equivalent is, you know, when you go on, as they say, when you go into a flight, you know, you have to put your mask on to before you actually get to help others. So the first, the book is really structuring three main areas of impact. One is personal impact, right? And this is really how you can get better yourself. Because if you are a more fulfilling individual that is in control of, of what they, they say, soft skills, right? Things like knowing how to persuade people, how to influence. You might have the big, the, the best idea ever, but if you don't know how to sell it, how to convince others, it's meaningless, right? So the first three chapters is really all about personal impact. Make yourself better as a designer, right? And then help everyone else. The second part is about societal impact, right? We talk, I talk a lot about technology. Uh, design is rarely non-political, right? It always takes a stand as technology is never neutral, neutral, right? It's always, it always takes a stand uh, against or for something. And then the third part of the book is really about uh, environmental impact, right? This is where I talk about design is not local anymore, is absolutely global, everything matters. And, you know, from being an industrial designer to being a digital designer, every design choice at the end of the day matters towards, again, not just the environment, but of course for society. Hmm. So, you know, one idea that I think we, we briefly talked, and this is like on chapter seven, is the notion that design is for humans, right? We have this idea of like human-centered design. When we know humans are just mere transitory users of a given design solution, because it normally ends up in a landfill somewhere, right? So we are really not the ultimate user of a given design solution. The environment is. And, and often, as we know, we don't even consider that as part of this long journey, as part of the life cycle of a product or a design solution. And that's a huge mistake, right? You know, if there's probably many of the, your listeners who understand a little bit about design, probably recognize the what's the diagram known as the double diamond, which has been very popular over the past 20 years. That explains the design process. And it's not the only one, but this double diamond created by the Design Council years ago, it's one of many diagrams that explain the design process. And all of them, without exception, have this idea that you understand the problem and you create a problem. And your responsibility ends with the launch, right? Deliver. Deliver is always the last stage of a design diagram, of a design process. As if after that, nothing else matters. You wash your hands as a designer and you jump to the next project. We don't even knowing if this is actually landing, if it's actually impacting, if it's positive, if it's, it's doing anything good for society, for the environment, for your fellow human beings, which it's just launched, right? It's just out there. And my job as a designer is done. So that mindset, this idea that, again, it's we finish our job once we our product and design solution is in the hands of a human is definitely a myth. One of the many, one of the nine myths I want to change uh, in, in this book. Hmm. I love the way the book is is uh, is laid out. Uh, in in the very first chapter, uh, design uh, is perfection. I mean, that mm -hmm. is a myth uh, that you want to explode. And I think right. it's interesting as you uh, explore kind of the nature of perfectionism, the way it often plays out. At one point, you say it's it it typically has two dimensions: it's excellent seeking and failure avoidance that yes. that is at the root of perfectionism and and you tell us that that both of those things can get in the way of effective design absolutely and and i think again some of that also stems from the fact that design has 
for too long now, I think, been associated with art, right? And arts and crafts movements. And of course, many of the design courses still today are thought within the context of design of, of art schools. And, you know, one of the things that I want to demystify is the notion of designer as an artist, right? As the big name, as Alvar Aalto, or like the big names of designers in the past. And this not only causes a great frustration, because most of the designers today, you know, look upon those those great names of the past as some someone that they should emulate. But design has changed dramatically, right? No one is a single designer anymore, right? I, I was in a team at some point at Google where we had 500 designers building a single platform, right? So designer is no longer like an artist, a single artist's uh, job. It's teams, right, making a lot of this. So a lot of the frustration that comes to designers about this, you know, following these perfectionist tendencies can cause a great degree of pain and frustration on many of them. Uh, because again, they are overly attached to ideas that are, you know, to be honest, just completely outdated. Hmm. I, I think that's uh, part of what you're getting at at one point when you you write about the the the, the force of fear in, in I suppose all of our lives, but particularly you're talking about in the life of a designer. And you write at one point, life is too short to limit ourselves by fear. The downside of all these fear-inducing biases is that they can lock people in a comfort zone and blind them from seeing the potential of acting on a whim and taking chances. If you want to do anything meaningful in life, you often must be uncomfortable and vulnerable. True novelty is always risky. It takes a leap of faith. You cannot be in a creative role if you are averse to risk. And I suppose part of the story of this is not just that a given designer needs to understand this and embrace this reality, but also that we have to be careful to create environments uh, in which this kind of risk-taking is is not, not just tolerated, but, I mean, welcomed and even encouraged. And, of course, there are many environments where just the opposite is the case. I, I think the environment plays a huge role. I'm so happy that you mentioned that, Greg, because, you know, I'm a manager and as a design manager, what I actually try to do, believe it or not, is for someone new that joins my team, a new designer joining my team, I try as as soon as possible for that designer, for he or she to actually fail as soon as possible. Because as soon as they fail, they get that pressure out of their system, right? Because what happens many times is that they build up this this aura of perfectionism right and it's it's really again it's something that they do it to themselves which is not great sometimes it's not necessarily the environment only causing this but designers put a lot of pressure on themselves and this leads to paralysis paralysis is in the sense that instead of taking a chance instead of doing something wrong they prefer to do nothing at all and i've seen this so many times immensely talented designers right not being able to take a chance because they are simply paralyzed by fear, right? By going on a whim, right? And putting their idea out there. And what happens often is that as soon as they put one single idea, they become overly attached to it. And then it's all about confirmation bias, right? And they try every other angle to validate that this idea is the right one. When instead, they should be focusing on many ideas instead of one, right? They should go wide as wide as possible. But again, this getting out of your comfort zone is not easy, especially for designers who are very prone for 
or perfectionism, mm. but it is absolutely prevalent that they do so in order to grow as, as professionals and do the right thing in the end, right? You write at one point, life is complex and imperfect. Every day is a struggle, a constant process of falling and rising. Acknowledging your own shortcomings and those of others is your first step in embracing imperfection. And of course, that whole matter of others brings to mind the uh, some of what you explore uh, in the second chapter, which is the myth design is about soul genius. And of course, this is an image that a whole lot of us have that that uh the most brilliant designers uh operate in a vacuum in a sort of a, a bubble of of greatness which they possess uh themselves not not realizing that so often design and brilliant design is all about collaboration and the sharing and and exchange and interplay of various ideas from from various people um, where do you think this myth comes from? What do you think its origins are of the 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 brilliant designer in isolation? Right. I mean, I think it, it still, again, stems from the fact that design and art have been associated for quite too long and, you know, still art. But even art is changing, as we know today. Many artists today, they are actually kind of like factories of people working for them, right, to produce many of the artifacts that they're doing. So even art is changing, you know, in that perspective when it comes to collaboration with wider teams. But I think design has always been associated with this, like, individual artists, right, at at a single pedestal creating for the masses, right? There's this, this very evocative image of this, you know, brilliant designer, right, putting together a quick sketch, sketch a quick sketch in a paper and creating something that no one other human has, has created before. So this myth of creation that's associated with the genius of an artist, of a genius of a, of, of a designer, this, of course, could not be further from the truth of what design is today, right? I gave you an example before that many products today could not even be, even if we wanted, could not be created by a single designer because they are immensely complex, Right. Just, you know, the Google search engine em- employs hundreds and hundreds of designers to make a, what is seemingly a very simple product. But there's a lot of details, a lot of interaction that's inherent to that product that demands a large team of people thinking and, and collaborating together, right? So even if you wanted, you know, a single designer could not do a lot of the things that we are doing today. And it's not just design. I mentioned that art is, of course, changing. Engineering is changing. When we talk about you know, artificial intelligence, we are talking about systems that are being created that no single human really understands the whole. And that's at the same time scary, and we could debate that, but it's the same thing for design. No one, no single designer understands the entirety of the product that's actually being created by multiple parts, by individual designers working together as, as a team. You write at one point, for better or worse, design today is rarely about the individual or the individual's idea. In many ways, it never should have been. Today, right. designers are immersed in large, multidisciplinary teams working in complex systems that require a great deal of coordination. They work closely with people performing a myriad of specialized design roles, some of which have only emerged in the past decade, and with people working in other disciplines, including product management, engineering, quality assurance, and sales. Uh, I mean, it's 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 exciting. But it's also kind of scary, and uh, and in some ways, uh, I can see how someone might want to retreat to outmoded ideas about what design is. 
about design in a sense being something far simpler. Uh, there's something a little uh, less intimidating about that as opposed to being part of this vast network, including all kinds of people who are not, in a sense, immersed in the same world that that you are. It's about the blending of different worlds and different perspectives, which can be really challenging. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, as, as, as I write, I think design never was really about the single figure. figure. I think we humans tend to gravitate towards the, the, the creation myth of, by, you know, the hero, the hero narrative, right? The hero narrative is something that is so strong. You know, if there's one type of, of mythology that we have played on all of us, right, is the narrative of a single hero that comes and saves us from, you know, a drama or a single event. It's so popular. You see it in religion. You see like all across cultures, across space and time, because this, this, uh, the, the narrative of a single era saving humanity is immensely powerful. And before we add people like designers and artists, now it's, you see that with like start, startup founders, right? They are treated as and revered as if they are like godlike figures, right? And I think I actually tend to be personally very much against any sort of like idolization of a, of a single human being because we are all immensely flawed, right? If you, again, one of my favorite Wikipedia pages is the list of cognitive biases, because it not only says like, are you the immense number of flaws that all of us share, but how universal those flaws are, right? So all of us, regardless of race, gender, uh, and nationality and culture, we are very much alike in the flaws that we share, right? So idealizing anyone or creating this myth or aura of someone that's greater than any of their fellow humans. I, I tend to, you know, be, be, be very much against that type of narrative, but it is somehow very curious how we humans tend to gravitate always towards that type of, of story. And to that kind of idolization. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point, I think you say a very simple line, but it's packed with truth. Uh, we love heroes. <laughs> we love, we love, we do so much. It's so crazy. How, how funny is that? Right, and it's like it's like we need heroes, and uh, and it's interesting uh, the, the the arenas in which we look for heroes, and the whole arena of design is one of the places where we want to be able to point to inter- individual heroic figures for for inspiration, and uh, you just uh, advise us to be really careful about that. No, absolutely, because I think there's, you know, there's a lot of dangers that stem from that, you know, notwithstanding that, of course, we are invalidating the work that hundreds and dozens of other people that have played in making that person famous, right? And I tell this really interesting study in that chapter on how a study that they've done in um, in Wall Street, where, you know, highly successful professionals, as soon as they go to another bank, right, they take five years to come back to the same place because they lost the structure that was supporting them in their previous job. And again, thinking very much that they are invincible, that they are all that matters, they are incredibly competent, which they are, but they also have an immense structure supporting them and people that are actually uplifting their own success. And sometimes if you're not uh, if you're not careful enough, you, f- you forget how, how that plays a huge role in your own personal success as well. For those of you who are just joining us, I'm speaking with Manuel Lima about his wonderful book, The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change. In this wonderfully written book, Manuel Lima uh, helps us think about the whole matter of design in 
in a sense, in a bigger way and in a more sort of sophisticated, evolved fashion uh, in which uh, we are called to kind of step away from some of the careless assumptions that we tend to make about designers and the work of design and the way in which uh, the most effective design is accomplished, particularly uh, in the 21st century. I really loved in particular the third chapter of the book, which is uh, uh, in which you take aim at the myth, design is about ideas. And I think what you're saying here is not that it has nothing to do with ideas or that ideas do not have a place uh, in the work of designers and design, but that it is not just about great ideas. Uh, and and when we focus too much on just the pure idea, uh, we, we have a problem uh, because we have an idea that might not have any connection with or implementation potential in, 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 in real life. Um, at one point, you write this, which I think is such a, a provocative statement. Ideas alone don't necessarily go far. For ideas to go somewhere, they need to contaminate others. They need to spread their wings and inspire minds beyond their creator. Therefore, you need to set them free. This sounds very close to what we were just talking about in terms of the second chapter, that uh, that design is not about the sole genius operating in isolation. But I think you're talking about even more than that here. Tell us more about this notion of setting ideas free. Right. I mean, I think there's definitely uh, uh, some overlap with the notion of memetics or information fusion, right? Like it's basically our ideas, our, our means, right? Uh, units of information are spread from person to person, right? They have to be, there's, there has to be a contagious element to them for them to spread in, a mean, in the sense that they have to serve a purpose, right? Say a joke, it's a form of a meme, right? Like it has to be really funny for you to tell your friends and, and for that uh, joke to spread within social circles, right? It's the same thing with ideas, right? So you might have the best, most brilliant idea that could actually save humankind and the world altogether. Now, if that idea doesn't go beyond your window, what purpose does it have, right? If it's like locked in a in a in an archive somewhere, like what is its purpose? So it's not just about an idea. It's sometimes it's even more important knowing how to sell an idea. Now, I do think there's a very entrenched sort of arrogance within the design and architecture and art world to say that, hey, we have this idea. You know, if they don't understand my idea, it's on them, right? It's their fault. I've done my job. I have already, I'm so brilliant. I already came up with this great idea. So <laughs> if it doesn't go further, it's their fault. Of course, it's a very easy way of looking at the world. And we know it's not like that. You know, normally there's always a human we have to convince either your boss, your manager, your peer, uh, your stakeholder, your client, whoever that human is, right? it's absolutely paramount that you have the right soft skills in order to influence that human, right? That gatekeeper that will actually get your idea much further, right? And, and that's something designers don't really either comprehend or even thought or even think about, right? Because again, it's all about the meat of production, which is like, we just have to come up with the idea and then it will sell on its own. No, absolutely not. You have to arm yourself with the right tools and the right soft skills to actually be able to persuade others, to convince others, you know, things like stakeholder empathy, right? 
um, there's a lot of things that you need to consider in order to sell your idea so it actually can spread and become viral. Because again, at the end of the day, that's all it that matters. Otherwise, what's the point of having this good idea in the first place? Right. <laughs> it's interesting how the metaphor of, of, in a sense, spreading disease, spreading a contagion, uh, your, your whole chapter is just littered with very specific references and terminology, you know, including super spreaders. I mean, that, you know, that they're it, yeah. it's kind of intriguing how, how closely these terms work in, 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 in both arenas. It is. And Greg, this is actually something that I discovered when I was doing my, my master's thesis years ago, and I was talking about the, 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 the idea of word of mouth, right? And it's kind of, I mean, those who are, of course, in the know of this, there's actually immense number of parallels between the way that ideas or information spread and diseases spread, right? Even the patterns are very similar. Some diseases are very one-off, offshoots, right? And then they, they die off as ideas, as memes, but others are, they keep on going. They're always ever prevalent and surface every so often in society. There's so many parallels that you can take on this, but but there's something very appealing about thinking about, you know, this notion of these uh, ideas and, and design solutions as, as diseases that could actually infect others in a good, positive way, of course. Right. So, I want to read uh, one of my favorite passages from this this chapter in which you you write this. Uh, as it should be clear by now, an idea, no matter how original, effective, or ethical it might be, is just an idea. If you don't know how to express it, how to put it into words, it will never go anywhere. Designers can be great originators, but are not always good catalysts. And that's such an interesting distinction. And I think that calls us back to what you were saying earlier about how when we want to train designers, we should be, in a sense, training them not only to be originators, and that's kind of what we often limit ourselves to thinking about with, with designers, but we need to design them to be catalysts as well. Yes. I mean, I think it, it is in your own self-interest, right? I mean, of course, you don't always have to do that. And and I talk about the example of Charles Darwin, who, who famously had a friend and a strong advocate, Uxley, who was really, he was known as the bulldog, Darwin's bulldog, in the sense that he would go into places and fight for Darwin's ideas. But not all of us have the luxury of having someone else to fight our ideas for us, right? Or be a great salesperson to our own ideas. We don't have that luxury, right? As, as Darwin did, very much. Who knows what if Huxley didn't exist and if Darwin's ideas would have gone so far as they have. But we don't have that luxury, many of us. So I think we need to, again, arm ourselves with the right skills to really persuade others, to take our ideas much further than we are. If we really believe them, they are meaningful. They're going to change something, right? If they want to have, if we want to have the, the positive in, impact we want to see in the world, we, we have to learn how to sell our ideas. And sometimes that's actually even more important than the ideas themselves. And, and even as a manager in the different places that I've worked, I've seen this happen through people that reported to me, right? Never giving up, you know, this idea of, of, of persevering in the face of, of, of rejection, right? That's also another super important soft skill because if you turn your back at this, the first door that closes in your face, again, you're not doing it. Believe in the idea, go further. Even if you have 10 no's, eventually you're going to see a yes, right? So be be prevalent you know like be you know persevere in the face of 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 rejection i think that's another great soft skill to have sure 
I think one that I find even more intriguing just because I think it, it is at odds with what we often think of as the sort of the classic uh, egghead, ultra brilliant uh, designer. Um, you you talk about one of the most important soft skills being empathy. And wow. I think sometimes when we think about certain uh, ultra brilliant designers and original thinkers, uh, we often think of them uh, as lacking in empathy because so often they're kind of up in this ivory tower or kind of dwelling on this level of brilliance far above the rest of us. And 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 yet you are calling for designers uh, to have empathy uh, because it can be, in a sense, uh, in your words, a superpower. Tell us, first of all, the sense in which you're using the word empathy and why you feel it is so essential uh, for a designer to be fully effective. Right. Well, so I think empathy can also be overused a little bit, and it has been actually over the past years in the, in the context of design. But but still, empathy, the way that I see it, is really putting yourself in someone else's shoes, right? Knowing what their struggles are, knowing what their needs are, what their requirements might be, right? Putting yourself in their shoes. And, and there's a lot of different ways you could do that, right? You know, immersing yourself with that person, going out, you know, understanding where they live, how they live, the struggles that they go through on a daily basis. There's a lot of immersive research, human research that can be done for you to really connect with that person. Because if you don't have that level of connection, which is the person that you're actually designing something for, right? What's the point, right? They are the ultimate users of whatever that design solution might be. So you have to really put yourself in their shoes, right? Live your life through their life. That's super important. And of course, empathy, to your point, and it goes back to like the whole idea of eros, right? And, and mimicking the behavior of eros. That's another dark side of, of the era narrative, which is, you know, in the past, this, this, uh, this aria of genius that had that single in designers had. And now, you know, we, we translate that towards uh, startup founders, right? They are like absolute genius. But the downside is that we also tend to mimic their behavior or we think their behavior is the right way of achieving success. And many of them, them as we know, don't show a great sign of empathy, right? Uh, a great sign of care about other people, especially employees. Uh, they are a little bit uh, arrogant at times. Um, so there's a lot of traits that these geniuses tend to have that by putting them at such a big pedestal, we tend to think that's the only way for us to achieve success when it's absolutely not true, right? So empathy is absolutely a trait that's connected to design because again, for the most part, when we design something for a fellow human being, putting ourselves in their shoes, apps immensely doing the right thing. Now, it is still a big challenge when we are creating tools for millions, if not billions of users, right? So I think those are other ways that we can actually mitigate that in order to like using user research and understanding. But empathy is a human superpower when it comes to design. It's an absolute skill that we have to develop. Right. But yes, I'm so glad you said this because in your fourth chapter, design is about tasks. You kind of talk about how we need to have maybe uh, an evolved sense of what empathy is in the in the modern world or the way in which empathy plays out. At one point in this chapter, you write, while well-intended, the importance of empathy in design 
describes an outdated one-to-one relationship between a designer and a customer, which changed a long time ago. <laughs> so in other words, uh, the, the sort of uh, lovely, intimate ways in which empathy once upon a time was, you know, in which we operated, now designers, I mean, at least in, in certain instances, are, are talking about design on a vast scale. And we have to think about ways in which this sense of connectedness and empathy is, is achieved beyond the simple one-to-one. Absolutely. And, and I talk a lot about accessibility. I talk a lot about inclusion in that chapter. I talked about the importance of diversity, right? Especially, again, let's say that you are a team of uh, 20 designers creating a tool that's used by millions of people around the world. Imagine the diversity of people that you are creating to, you know, the backgrounds, racial diversity, you know, gender, like cultural languages, like there's so much richness in that sample of like millions of people across, across the world that the, that group of 20 designers cannot really reach or even find or even imagine what it's like, right? So are we going to create the right design solution, right? So I think a lot of that stems from like understanding that range, wide range of diversity and always avoid creating for the norm because the norm is another myth, you know, the, the, the standard, you know, the idea of what there is a standard by creating, by imagining there is a standard or designing towards a standard, you are automatically excluding everyone that doesn't fit that curve, everyone that doesn't fit that standard. So it's, it's a type of design exclusivism, right? By just doing that uh, and focusing on, on the standard. So that's a lot of the chapter is based on that. It's trying to create, to go broad, as broad as you can, but also embrace diversity in the, the very team that actually creating those experiences when it comes to design. Mm. I really enjoyed the fifth chapter of your book, which is design is a measurable instrument uh, in which you sort of take aim at at, at the myth that, that excellence uh, can always be measured in very quantifiable ways. And of course, we see that playing out in all kinds of arenas, including particularly education. Uh, and, and you tell us, or you make mention more than once in this chapter to uh, humans yearning for measurement. What is the comfort that we get in being able to attach a specific number to something that we are trying to assess? What is the hunger that is being assuaged there? And what is the danger of of of, of doing so too much when it comes to design? I think ultimately it stems from fear, as many of our behaviors still today stem from fear. I think in this one is a fear of failure, right? The fear of, of taking a chance, the fear of taking a risk, right? And why? And, and you see this play out with like chat GPT and all the, this AI sentient sort of um, uh, systems and platforms we have this eagerness for for this myth of objective certainty that goes back way many centuries, right? And we pursue it as nothing else. But of course, it is a myth. There's nothing, the objective certainty is, it doesn't exist, right? Every single human being makes decisions. A lot of our most rational decisions are driven by our emotions. It's, 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 it's just the way it is, right? So, but we... We seek this like idea that someone will tell us what to do eventually. And I think I talked a little bit about this and we can talk about how artificial intelligence is almost like another sort of 
godlike figure figure telling us what to do and how to do it right and because that's reassuring to us as a humans as, as a species but i think when it comes to like the myth of objective certainty is really the fear of failure and you see this in in large tech companies all the time right let's have more data to validate our hypothesis let's have more data instead of just making a decision based on gut or intuition my god that's a forbidden world in the tech world today intuition is like crossed from every dictionary there mm -hmm. uh let's base let's have more data to validate our assumptions so that we don't take any chance whatsoever and of course innovation is as always chance always as a risk right mm -hmm. and you know i talk a lot about this you know the 41 shades of blue at google which is like a great case of excessive optimization the fact that we couldn't really trust our intuition and a designer's you know strong responsibility and knowledge to create a single shade of blue but we instead they actually put 41 different shades of blue and tested that across and then they had data but i think the downside of that excessive optimization and too much data is that it also leads to paralysis to what it's called analysis paralysis because you have too many options and all of a sudden you, you are literally parallel, paralyzed by just having too much information. And you see this also happening all the time, right? And design is just caught in this dreamy world of like pursuing this myth of objective certainty at all costs and mm -hmm. avoiding risk, right? Yes. At one point, as you talk about this, you quote someone who used to work at, at Google, uh, Douglas Bowman, and he talked about what he called the widespread data-centric culture not only at Google, but throughout the tech sector. And you write, when every move needs to be measured, the process can lead to sluggishness. Mm -hmm. And such a crutch eventually becomes a barrier to creativity. Uh, and I, I think that's, you know, I, I don't think a whole lot of people maybe take the time to make that connection, but uh, something that might at the surface seem like a laudable goal uh, can in fact be very seriously counterproductive. I, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think I, I talk a lot about in this context the, the paradox of choice. And I, I love this notion of the paradox of choice. It's also called X law. And it tells us that, you know, the more options we have, the more time it takes for us to make a decision. And we see this all the time. You know, we might think we, we go into a supermarket in the US, let's say, and we think that we are, this is great. We have like, this wide range of diversity when it comes to a single aisle on peanut butter, right? But we forgot uh, that excessive number of options when it comes to peanut butter, when all you had is just a simple jar of peanut butter. Now you have chunky, extra chunky, you know, smooth, extra smooth. We like uh, caramel on the side, chocolate. It's like, I just want peanut butter, right? And all of a sudden it takes a decision that would take you like milliseconds to make. Now it takes like five minutes. Or it's the same thing with the other day I was trying to buy a pillow. And now you just don't buy a pillow. You have to spend like two weeks researching on the right pillow, right? The right material, the right texture, how soft, how hard it is. It's a whole process. And I talk about uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard in that context because he says that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And it's so well connected with the paradox of choice. We think we live in this great new world and we have like this abundance of choice, but that abundance comes at a price. And that price normally is a lot of stress and anxiety to do any simple decision that we do from buying a, a jar of peanut butter to buy a new pillow. 
And the same thing is for design. We are just like, everything is like driven by measurement and data. And all of a sudden you are paralyzed by just simply having too many options and not moving forward with, with you know, the right innovative solution. Mm. I want to end by mentioning that your book goes to, I think, a really important place uh, in the seventh chapter uh, where the myth is that we that design is for humans. And what you were saying in this chapter is that uh, the things that we design and then ultimately manufacture and put in the world uh, are going to remain in the world long after human beings are gone. And we are only now beginning to come to grips with the impact that we are having on our planet. And and designers uh, need to begin to think about this. What would be your parting words of wisdom when it comes to the matter of designing with the well-being of our planet in mind? Right. I mean, I think so. Up to now, this idea of human-centered design has been very productive, and it actually caused a lot of good things, right? By focusing on humans, the, the ultimate transitory users of our uh, design solutions. But I, as I talk in that chapter, we need to really like change that uh, model a little bit to be more earth-centered design, because really, ultimately, our end users is, is the planet. Uh, again, we are creating a, a lot of solutions that will as you add to your point, right, will outlive us by sometimes many centuries and even millennia, right? So we need to like really think about that long life cycle of a product and know what, how it's going to end, right? Like we need to understand the impact that we our solutions are having on planet Earth and treat planet Earth as the ultimate stakeholder of our solution, as the ultimate user of our solution. So when it comes to like a user journey, a user journey is never complete or should never be complete from today forward. If we don't, you know, if we don't consider planet Earth in that equation, mm. not just about a single user or customer, but like planet Earth as the ultimate stakeholder. Absolutely. You write, we do not design for humans. Customers are only transient users of our products. We ultimately design for the environment. Your product will likely outlive your end user and inhabit the environment for much longer. We need to expand the life cycle of a design and plan for post-use. Any product journey is incomplete if it does not reflect this critical shift in understanding. Well, we could go on all day talking about the brilliant insights that are part of your fascinating book, The New Designer, Rejecting Myths, Embracing Change, published by uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author Manuel Lima. Manuel Lima, I've been really honored to speak with you about your absolutely fascinating book. It gave me so much to think about, and I know that uh, the listeners who will seek it out will find it similarly thought-provoking in the best sense of the word. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for being my morning show guest. I was honored to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. You're too kind, Greg. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here, for sure. <laughs>